0: Beloved, the uh, Apostle Paul says in the second chapter of Ephesians, and beginning in verse 11 and running through the end of that chapter, the following. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We are here in chapter 6 of this great epistle to the Ephesian church. And in particular, verses 5 through 9 this morning For our third and final message on this long-running series in what's commonly called the Household Code. That is, the commands from the Apostle Paul to these early Ephesian believers, these early Gentile believers, that elaborate how to live out the reality of what we have just read there in chapter 2. That they who were formerly far off, who were slaves in darkness, have been set free in Christ and brought together with Jewish believers into this one new body called the church? And how are they now to live out the reality of that radical transformation? How is the Christian faith supposed to express itself in the home? And so Paul, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 5 and running all the way through verse 9 here of chapter 6, has been addressing that very topic. And he has taken up the the relationships within the home of husband and wife and, and parents and children, and now a topic that is foreign to us in many, many ways, and that is the topic of Christian slaves and masters. And the message that Paul has here is that as slaves and masters who are Christian, that is, who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have experienced the radical transformation of faith in the living Savior, have been made and placed on equal terms in the body of Christ. And that is absolutely uh, radical and and, and amazing because in societal terms, they they couldn't be more different in terms of their power and and in terms of their self-determination and in terms of their economic status. And yet in Christ, they have been made equal. And the teaching here in in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6, regarding the implications of, of the body of Christ, accomplish something societally that that took time to play itself out. And and what it accomplished is that it it cut the thread that held together the whole institution of slavery. And by cutting that thread, it, it assured the ultimate undoing of what had for centuries been common in the ancient world. Now, it didn't end it all at once, But that radical message of equality in Christ cut the thread and led to the eventual unraveling of slavery. It just took time. It took time. Listen to Paul's words here, beginning in verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With goodwill render service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now we don't live in a slave economy. None of us have any experience with it. The closest we might have would be the history books that have of spoken of the blight of American slavery which was an awful and dreadful institution but was not, as we pointed out some weeks ago, identical with what was going on here in the first century. And because we have no direct experience with slavery it would be easy to just sort of read this and pass over it quickly. But I think there's profit here for us in, in understanding what Paul is saying to the believers of that first century who found themselves in a situation they could not have imagined anything different. That's all that any of them had ever known or could ever conceive. And as we understand what Paul has to say to them, particularly slaves who are, who are living in, the, in very difficult circumstances, that we can make application to our own situation in terms of the job market and, and how we find ourselves employed. And so we've entitled this, this section of the, of the Household Code, Living and Working in a Bad Situation. And I know some of you, you're finding yourselves that place. I've, I've talked with a few of you of late, and, and you've explained some of the woes that you're experiencing in your own employment situation right now, and it's, and it's definitely not a good place. Others of you are in a great place right now, and you love your job, and everything's going great. And as we said when we began, we say again, now those of you who are in a hard place, there's something for you right here, right now. And for those of you who've got a wonderful job, hang on. There'll be something. So learn, file it away, you'll have your chance too. Because we're broken people. And we're living in a broken world. And look at the structure here, and looking at the structure of these verses, we noted there are five principles. And that's how we've arranged this. Five principles that govern how we are to live and work when we find ourselves in a bad situation. Five principles that govern how we live and work when we find ourselves in a bad situation. The first was that you change what you can. You change what you can. The second, that you obey where you must. You change what you can, you obey where you must. And then third, which is where we really will dig in this morning, is that we serve with integrity. We serve with integrity. And we noted that Paul is concerned here for Christian slaves, not just with the fact that they obey Obedience is important, for sure, and he says that in verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. But obedience was the basic expectation. And so as a Christian, we've got a lot more than just baseline expectations, simple societal expectations. Paul is interested here with regard to the Christian slaves and the manner in which they obey and the theological motivation behind their obedience. So they are to serve with integrity. They are to serve with integrity. In other words, that how they obey, the, the manner in which they obey, and the reason for which they obey is vitally important to Paul. We introduced this a couple of weeks ago when we were here in this text, and we said that we could find here under verses, the second half of verse 5 through verse 7 a fourfold description of Christian service. Uh, this idea of serving with integrity is, is elaborated for us in a, in a fourfold way. And we looked at the first of those in verse 5 itself, and that is that they were to work with sincerity. So serving with integrity is the broad statement, but then it breaks down into, into four components, the first of which is they are to serve with integrity. Paul says here, verse 5, right, slaves be obedient to those who we are your masters according to the flesh, and here it is, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. And we noted last time that the the fear and the trembling that Paul's talking about here is is the idea of reverence and awe. The reverence and awe that a believer feels when they they understand the implications of the lordship of Jesus Christ. You remember back in chapter 1, where beginning in verse 18, Paul was praying for the Ephesian believers that, that the eyes of their heart would be opened and so that they might understand the reality of the ascended Christ who is seated now at the, at the right hand of the Father and, and to whom all rule and authority over all of creation has been handed to him. He is the risen Lord. And as we think about that, as we, as we dwell on the the implications of all of that, it brings a a reverence and an awe of Christ. And so with that reality of the ascended Christ standing behind even the slavery here, and the implication of which is that, that as the ascended Christ he providentially rules over his creation, And in this time and place, it is through the the mechanism and means of this slavery. Therefore, when they submit to their masters, they are submitting to Christ. When they submit to their masters, they are submitting to Christ. And specifically, Paul here says their their submission is to be characterized by, verse 5, a sincerity of heart. Do You see it? A sincerity of heart. In other words, an inner sincerity, a a personal integrity, a personal integrity. Paul is dealing for or with these first century believers with their motives. He's getting after their motives. And he he is telling these believing slaves that that they're not only to do what they're told to do, but they're, they're to do so with the kind of attitude that one would expect as if Christ himself were giving them the commands that their master is giving to them. They need to understand the theological implications behind the lordship of Christ. As he rules the world providentially at this time, through slavery, through slavery. Secondly, they are not only to work with sincerity, they are to work honestly. In the sincerity of your heart, he says, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers. They're not only to work sincerely, they're to work honestly. And Paul uses a really interesting term here eye service. This, uh, this word, it's a compound word. It's, it's actually made up of, of two words, the, the verb to, to see and, and the, uh, the noun for slave, doulos. And, and Paul puts it together, and it's used only one other place in the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22, where Paul writes there, Bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Paul created a word here. That's the best we can tell. It doesn't appear anywhere in Greek literature prior to Paul's usage here. And Paul had a way of doing that, by the way. I think it's a sign of intelligence when you make up words. <laughs> and so he created this word out of the verb to see and the, and the noun for slave. And it, and it basically means Um, Serving with a view to impress other people. Serving with a view to impress other people. That's what it means to to, to render eye service. And Paul says, as as Christian slaves, you are to obey, but you're not to do it in a way that, that the purpose of which is just to make a favorable impression on your master. In other words, you're not supposed to work hard while you're being observed and then slack off when you're not. That's the idea here. Instead, you're to work honestly. You're to provide a solid day's work without regard to whether the master is there watching you or not, to whether he's turned his back or, or not. You're to work honestly for him, regardless of whether he sees you or doesn't see you. How relevant this is, isn't it, to the day and age in which we live? I can remember I was about 16 years old when I was introduced to the ways of the world with regard to uh, working for eye Service. I had gotten a job in a grocery store working in the dairy department of the grocery store, and I was trained by a, a guy who was about 30 years old and was a Navy veteran, and he he showed me how to, um, to, when I was out on the main floor and stocking merchandise, to hustle and to really move fast and to dress out the, the shelves and so forth and do a really, really fine job, and then how to go back into the warehouse and, and get lost for extended periods of time, and in the summer months, he showed me how I could go into the coolers and pretend to straighten up products for extended periods of time while I was relaxing, you know, in the 40-degree temperature of the dairy coolers. We were both considered excellent employees, by the way. We were considered excellent employees by the management because when they saw us, we were hustling. And when they turned their back, we were dogging it. It was quite a few years, actually, before I came to understand the, the reality of the situation there. I, at the time, I really didn't think there was all that much wrong with it. It was only when I became a believer and began to reflect back onto it that I could understand the realities of what it really was. And beloved, it's a, it's a sad commentary on the American worker today that many, many uh, companies, uh, feel like they have to install video surveillance so that they can keep track of their workers, so that they can know that they're actually working and not pilfering from them. For Christians, we don't need video surveillance to work hard. We don't need that. We're, we're to be honest, in the marketplace because we are Christians because it is a fulfillment of the second great command, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Because we do our work under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They are to work sincerely. They are to work honestly. Third, they are to work wholeheartedly, verse 6 again, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, in contrast to to rendering your service only when the boss is looking, Paul is is enjoining these believers to recognize the ultimate reality that their their master is Christ. And therefore, their service to him is, is to be literally from the soul, out of one's innermost being. In other words, they are to serve their master, with a, their earthly master, with a level of dedication that is internally motivated and based upon the recognition that their, their ultimate master is Christ. And as they serve their earthly master, they're serving Christ, and this is the will of God for them. Again, over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23... Paul speaks of the same thing to the believers there. and He says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. In other words, when you work, you work wholeheartedly and you do so because you know you are working for Christ. You are working for Christ. And as you do that, you are offering Christ your worship, your worship work wholeheartedly. Fourth, fourth, they are to work enthusiastically, sincerely, honestly, wholeheartedly. This is what it means to, to, to serve with integrity here. They're to work enthusiastically, verse 7, with goodwill, render service, As to the Lord and not to men. Do you you see how all through this, Paul continues to say, listen, I know you're serving an earthly master, and I know it's a hard place, but recognize this, that behind him stands Christ. And when you serve him, you are, in effect, serving Christ. And so Paul continues to provide that reminder to them, that theological motivation for how they are supposed to serve. Because we're serving Christ, I mean, I'm sorry, because they are serving Christ, and yeah, by application, because we are serving Christ as we work, right, then we should render that service with a a good or a positive attitude, with goodwill. The the idea here is, is with a positive attitude, rather than to serve grudgingly. Now listen, when you're a good worker, when you are a good worker, it's likely you're going to stand out from the unbelieving world. Most people are not good workers. Most people are lazy, self-absorbed, want to do as little as possible. So when you work as a Christian and you work according to your Christianity, you will likely stand out. And they would have stood out in their day as well. And they, they probably would have drawn the favor of their master. I mean, people notice And in particular, what people notice is your attitude. Do you know that? If you've got a good attitude, particularly if you've got a nasty boss, and you still have a good attitude, that really stands out. People notice your attitude in these things. But but Paul says here that the ultimate motivation to this, even in an inherently unjust system, is the recognition that the ultimate obedience is to the Lord you see it so work with a positive attitude render your service with a positive attitude as to the Lord and not to men it doesn't matter whether your boss is a jerk or not because your ultimate boss is your perfect heavenly master that is Christ Paul is calling on these Christian slaves to serve their earthly masters in a way that is qualitatively and quantitatively different from all the unbelievers around them. Why? Why? Because by serving them in that way, they are serving Christ. You see it again. With goodwill, with a positive attitude, render your service as to the Lord, not to it is this recognition, beloved, it is this recognition that Christ stands behind our work, that he sanctifies, that he, he sets it apart as, as ultimate service to him that changes everything. Changes everything. It, it turns work from drudgery into worship drudgery into worship, even when you got a nasty boss. Now notice Paul doesn't say that this takes the pain of it all away. Did you notice that? Paul does not tell these people, listen, all you have to do is remember that Jesus is your ultimate boss, and it doesn't matter how crummy your earthly boss is, everything's going to be great, you're going to love it. He doesn't promise no pain. He doesn't promise no pain. But what he says is that it changes your focus. It allows you to see God's great gospel purposes that lie behind the pain. And that changes everything. That changes everything. Peter speaks in a similar way when when Peter says if you serve an unreasonable master... Remember that Christ suffered for you without uttering any threats. The gospel changes the way we approach it. It doesn't take the pain away. Now, just applicationally thinking about this, if, if this is the way a Christian slave is to serve their master, then what would Paul say to us moderns, right, with how we are supposed to serve our employers so that we don't blunt the Christian gospel at work? If they are to serve with good attitude, if they are to serve wholeheartedly, if they are to serve honestly, if they are to serve sincerely, in circumstances far more difficult than ours, then what would he say to us? What would he say to us? Paul's principles here are to change what you can. Obey where you must. Serve with integrity. And fourth, verse 8, think eschatologically. Think eschatologically, look at verse 8, knowing that, having been convinced that, firmly knowing that, those would all be legitimate translations, whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Now listen, the world is filled with injustice. The world is filled with injustice. And and the righteous heart longs for the day when Christ will come and make things right. That is one of the signs of, of Christian conversion, a longing for the return of Christ, who will make things right. So Paul brings these believing slaves now here in this fourth principle, that, that speaks about how they are to live and, and how they are to serve in this difficult situation, and he, and he firmly roots it in the return of Christ, in the return of Christ. They are to think eschatologically, knowing that whatever good thing they do, this Christ or this they will receive back from Christ, whether they are slave or free. Because in serving their earthly masters, they're ultimately serving Christ, it is to Christ they need to look for their recognition and their final reward. They may get earthly recognition, they may get earthly reward, and they may not. They may work hard, they may work honestly, they may work with sincerity, and they may get a raw deal. They may have a bad master. So they cannot look to this life and expect things to be properly balanced here and now. It may come out well for you. That's what I said. If you've got a great job, praise the Lord. And it may last a long time. And it may not. And it may not. But the believer doesn't look for our final accounting in this life. God doesn't balance the books at the end of every day. But for the Christian, we look beyond to the, to the life to come. And our, and our true reward for our Christian obedience comes not in this life, but in the next. It comes in the next. The verb that Paul uses here to, to speak about Christ's reward or repayment, komizo is the, is the Greek word here. It means to receive or to, to recompense. Right, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will commit. he will receive, or he will, or it will be recompensed back to him from the Lord, whether slave or free. And this verb is is uh, it appears in a very very key text. And the key text that it appears in is Second Corinthians chapter five and verse ten. And it is used there in a, in a, in the context of eschatological judgment and specifically. The judgment that all Christians will undergo at what is known as the Bema Seat of Christ. The Bema Seat. Now, this is not a judgment of our sin, because our sin was dealt with by Christ on the cross, but this is a judgment of evaluation of our life. And it is for the purposes of providing eternal reward, right? Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The bema is the the Greek, the bema seat of Christ. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. All right, so here's the deal. Following the rapture of the church, which occurs prior to the beginning of the tribulation, All Christians will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, and they will be evaluated by Christ as to their Christian discipleship. Those deeds of faith, often done in secret, many times done in the face of adversity, these will receive Christ's reward. Those faithless deeds which have no eternal value, will be burned up. You can reference 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 13 to 15, check it on your own, where Paul talks about the burning there. That which is gold and silver and precious stones survive. That which is wood, hay and stubble is consumed, but not we ourselves. For our ultimate destiny is with God in Christ, and that was resolved in the cross. But there is this evaluation of our Christian discipleship. Now, look how Paul reminds them here. He says, knowing that whatever good thing, whatever good thing they do, the idea here is is whatever deed they do, even the smallest of deeds, that would be a, a good thing, doesn't go unnoticed by Christ and will be rewarded in the end. This is so encouraging when you think about it. In other words, it doesn't matter whether the boss is looking or not looking. We don't work so that we get seen and promoted. We work unto the Lord. And it could go completely unnoticed. In fact, it could, it could in this messed up world, end up bringing all kinds of, you know, difficulties on you. And you, and you might be tempted to say, this is for the birds, I'm going to start doing like everybody else. When the boss is around, I work hard. When he's gone, I mess up. But Paul says, uh-uh. Your boss is always around. Your boss is always looking. And, and nothing you do is going to go unnoticed by him. Now, if you're a goof-off, I suppose that could be a pretty bad threat, Right? But if, you're, if you are living out your conversion, your, your Christian faith in the marketplace, then this is an incredible encouragement to you. Because what it's saying is that at the end of the day, when it's all done, when, when we breathe our last breath and, and we, we come into the presence of the Lord, and all the other believers are gathered with us in the rapture, then our real boss We'll have a complete record of everything we've done. And all of those good things, all those little acts of Christian service will be remembered and be rewarded. Remembered and rewarded. Now this mention here of good thing, whatever good thing each one does, verse 8, it draws my mind back to chapter 2, and I hope it does yours as well. Because there, back in chapter 2, we have this most majestic statement of the gospel beginning in verse 8, don't we? I mean, we love these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We need to include 10, though. All right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What are the good works that have been prepared beforehand for you and I to walk in, for all Christian believers to walk in? You've heard me say it before. The good works are elaborated in this letter, in the second half of this letter. And here for the for the un, for the excuse me for the believing slaves and, and masters, their good works are, or particularly here for the slaves, their, their good works are the mundane tasks of, of slave life. It's emptying, it's emptying the, the master's chamber pot. It's, it's cooking the master's meals. It's plowing the field. It's, it's mucking out the barn. It's, it's whatever the master tells them to do. That are done with an understanding that ultimately it's Christ who stands behind this. And then when we do this, we're serving him. We're bringing him glory. We're living out our conversion. That reality of Paul's statement here, right, the good works which God has, been, has prepared beforehand so that we should walk in him, it is dramatically illustrated here in the life of a household slave. Listen, if the life of a household slave and all the things they're called to do is the good works that God has foreordained for them that bring glory to Christ, then for you and me in our life, we don't have to do that stuff. So everything I'm called on to do, everything you're called on to do is ultimately to Christ. And done with the right attitude, right? Served with integrity. Brings glory to Christ. Fifth principle. Verse 9. Practice mutuality. Practice mutuality, verse 9. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now, just like in marriage, which was the first topic that was handled, right, in the household code here, and just like in parenting, Paul ends this section with instructions to the dominant member in the relationship. So he ends his section on husbands and wives, he addresses wives first, then he addresses the husbands. In the parent child, he addresses the child first, and then he addresses the parents slash the father. Here he addresses the slaves first, he ends with the master. And his statements here are radically countercultural just like they were for husbands, just like they were for fathers. And they reflect the transformation of the relationship that is brought about by Christian conversion. Masters do the same things to them. Specifically here, Paul is calling upon the Christian masters to do two things. To do two things here. They are to display the same integrity in attitude and action toward their slaves as the slaves are called upon to display towards them. They are to, right, do the same things. In other words, they're to act with sincerity. They're to act with honesty. They're to act with good attitude towards their slaves. This is revolutionary. This is revolutionary. Nobody tells the masters of that day... That you are to to treat your slaves. You remember that the the Latin for the slave was, was a talking tool. And here Paul is saying, there's this elevated level of service of them to you because of who they are in Christ. But guess what? There's an elevated level of responsibility for you as a Christian master back to your slaves. You need to display integrity towards them. Right? Do the same things to them, he says. Secondly, give up threatening. Give up threatening. Display integrity, give up threatening. In other words, give up what is the societally accepted prerogative of threatening violence in order to manipulate and motivate your slaves. This is exactly opposite of what would have been standard and conventional wisdom of the day. You want your slaves to do what you you tell them to do, then you threaten them. You threaten them. Now, Paul is not saying here, we need to understand it, Paul is not saying here that, that physical punishment is completely ruled out. If the slave is out of order and needs to be punished, punishment is still permissible. It would, it would need to be obviously administered with Christian charity and compassion and all the rest of that. And you can look into the Old Testament and you can see those things, right? We, we looked at some of that stuff. Right? In, in Hebrew society, if, if in, the, in the administering of physical corporal punishment to a slave, you knocked out his tooth, he goes free. But what Paul is prohibiting here is threatening violence as a management style or technique. That's what's being prohibited here. They must give up threatening as a management technique. Now we should be able to identify with this because threatening as a management technique is prevalent today in our world. I can remember early in my working career, stretching back nearly 40 years now, actually more than 40 years now, barely. That I was in a meeting one time where I saw a grown man reduced to tears by a vice president who harassed him, humiliated him, and intimidated him in front of his co-workers, all because the man showed up unprepared for a meeting. We're talking a grown man reduced to tears. I remember years later being in a room and witnessing the vice chairman of Bank of America at the first merger meeting between the lending group at Security Pacific Bank, of which I was a member, in which all of us officers were together in a conference room along with the president of our subsidiary. And I can remember the vice chairman of Bank of America going off on the president of our subsidiary, profanely, publicly, dressing him down in front of us for the expressed purpose of putting fear in all of us. And the issue that he dressed him down over was that we forgot to provide a Diet Coke for him to drink to accompany his jelly donut for breakfast. Yeah. A vice chairman of Bank of America. That tirade went on for 15 minutes. Violence as a management technique. Those are just a couple of the stories from my prior working career. I'm sure that you could add many of your own. Beloved, there's no place. There is no place for a Christian in a supervisory or management position to utilize threats, actual or implied, in order to motivate or manage employees. If you are in a supervisory position here this morning and you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must resist. You must resist the temptation to, to employ this kind of dehumanizing behavior in order to get people to do what you want. It is sub-Christian. It is sub-Christian. And I want you to notice here, the, verse 9, the motivation because what Paul is commanding them to do here is very, very, very countercultural. So, the motivation for them to give up what is their societal privilege, in other words, the, the threat of violence, is grounded in, an, in a threefold understanding give up threatening, knowing. That both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. In other words, that even though they are an earthly master, they have a master. You see it? Both their master and yours. That is Christ. And they are accountable to a higher authority. Just like the slaves are. And this is a radical concept in the Roman world of this day. This puts slaves and masters on equal spiritual footing. I told you, this snipped the thread that led to the unraveling of this savage system of slavery that existed in the known world and had existed for millennia. They are in the same body of Christ They are thus equal in Christ. The human master has the same master as the slave. They are both under the authority of Christ. Secondly, Paul says that Christ is an impartial judge, right? There is no partiality with him. Christ is an impartial judge. In other words, Jesus Christ is not impressed with how much earthly authority you have, how much earthly status you have, how much earthly wealth you have, how much you know, what people you know, none of that stuff cuts any ice with him. He could care less. So his evaluation, his judgment of you, if you find yourself here in a position of great authority, he is unimpressed with it. He does not receive a face, literally, to be the word impartial means, Therefore, masters and slaves, they stand on equal footing and they will receive equal treatment in an evaluation of how they carry out the implications of the gospel in their various social settings. In other words, the slaves will be held accountable by Christ and will receive reward by Christ for how they carry out Christ's instructions to them as slaves. The masters will receive an evaluation from Christ will receive the reward or lack thereof from Christ based on how they carry out what Christ expects of them. And that leads to the third statement here, and that evaluation is at the famous seat of Christ, right? Verse 8, Knowing whether good, uh, whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, notice it, whether slave or free. In other words, both slaves and free by extension, masters stand before the Bema Seat and are evaluated. So, slaves and masters, you have, the same, you have the same master, Christ, you're accountable to him. He judges impartially and you will be evaluated at the Bema Seat. Now, some in reading this believe that Paul is teaching an egalitarian doctrine here, a basic egalitarian doctrine. In other words, that he is wiping out distinctions. But he's not. What Paul is is teaching here is that the, the relationship between slave and master is reciprocal, but it is not symmetrical. Okay, That's important to understand. It is reciprocal, it is not symmetrical. In other words, they have responsibilities to each other, but they're not identical responsibilities. In other words, they are not socially equal, but they are similarly obligated to submit their attitudes and actions to the lordship of Christ. And the same could be said for us. If you're a worker today, you don't have the same social obligations and privileges as the boss. And as a boss, you don't have the same responsibilities as the worker. Okay? But there is a reciprocal responsibility as a Christian worker, a Christian boss, that derives from the fact that you are both part of the body of Christ. So no, Paul does not Command Christian masters to free their slaves. Rather, he commands them to treat them in a way that recognizes their status that both master and slave are joint heirs with Christ and subject to his gracious lordship over both of them. Beloved, these are the five principles that you and I need to take every day into the marketplace. Change what you can. Obey where you must. Serve with integrity. Think eschatologically. And serve with mutuality. Okay? Serve with mutuality. May the Spirit of God apply the truth this morning exactly where you and I need it. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot here to think about. All the specific applications day to day, week in, week out, various job settings, various responsibilities, various pressures, Commitments and obligations. But Father, one thing that is clear is that our Christian faith is not just a Sunday faith. It's just not a gathering here for a couple of hours on one day a week and singing about who we are in Christ and all that has happened and, and changed. That our head full of rocks and our heart made of stone has been exchanged by the power of your spirit into a, into a heart of flesh that loves the Lord Jesus Christ? How can that remain only here? How can that not go into the workplace Monday through Friday? And so, O oh Lord, we pray you would increase our faith. I pray specifically for my brothers and sisters here this morning who are finding themselves in a very difficult situation. They're working for someone who would, is ungrateful, someone who is harsh perhaps, maybe even dishonest. Someone who, who utilizes threats and harassment as a management technique. And, and Father, I pray that you would give my brother or sister here wisdom in, in how to sort through this. And, and if it's time to change, then, then I pray that you would enable them to be able to do that and you would provide alternative employment situations for them. But if this is the season for them to suffer, then, Lord, may they see in the sufferings, the sufferings of their Savior. And in that, may they take hope. For Jesus, for the joy set before him, despised the cross and the shame. And, Father, it is by the power of your Spirit that we can do the same. Looking for our final reward. Not disappointed when we don't get it in this life. And Father, for that person or persons here this morning who, who have walked in on us and, and don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe have been coming for a while and, and observing dispassionately, I pray that today you would break through to them For it is by grace through faith that we are saved in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may they be drawn to that truth. Open their eyes to believe that they too may experience the tremendous freedom of the Lordship of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.